I want to jump in this morning, uh, get right to our passage. It's in 2 Timothy 2, verse 1 to 13. 2 Timothy 2, 1 to 13. And you see that you have uh, notes there in your outline. Paul is writing here and he says to Timothy, So you, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Share the things that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses with faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Endure hard times as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier on active duty entangles himself with civilian affairs that he may please the enlisting officer. Anyone who competes as an athlete is not rewarded without competing legally. The farmer who labors should be first to partake of the crops. Consider what I am saying, and may the Lord grant you understanding in all things. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David according to my gospel, in which I suffered trouble like a criminal, even in chains. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is a faithful saying, If we die with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. So today's message is about the rapture. About the rapture. Now that I've got your attention, um, it's specifically uh, about the sheer amount of end times speculation that we've been experiencing over the last year or so, but especially uh, since the outbreak of the COVID-19. Wouldn't you agree that it's, it's almost impossible to scroll through your social media feed or WhatsApp groups without coming across uh, some sort of end time conspiracy theory or a prediction of when Jesus is going to come back? We see that end times prophecy books are bestsellers at Kum Books. Christian magazines have The End is Near on their covers. Prophecy experts on YouTube and on television are adamant that Jesus is coming back soon, in our lifetime. We see a renewed interest in uh, Christians that follow uh, significant prophetic events, especially uh, in the Middle East, but all over the world. More and more Christians are flipping between the news on the one hand and the book of Revelation on the other hand to see how these fit together. We see that some of these prophecy experts are getting mainstream attention and airtime. And people all over the world are flocking to them with questions. I know this because I spend uh, some time listening to some of the content that they put out on a weekly basis. And it's hours and hours and hours. But they'd say, like, Jesus is coming back one of these days. And he's going to take his church out of here, away from the mess and the rubbish dump that the world has become. Good riddance to that. He will not allow his bride to suffer in the great tribulation, which is just around the corner. The church better be ready, better have their spiritual bags packed and ready to leave. Because it could happen at any moment. As one author put it, why would you rearrange the deck chairs on the sinking Titanic? This world has had its chance to repent and believe in Jesus. Now all that awaits it is tribulation, suffering, and destruction. But thankfully, we will not be here to witness it. 
But what if we are still here? What if Jesus is not coming back when we think that he is? What if our predictions turn out to be wrong? And if these failed predictions lead us or others to great disappointment, to doubting the promise of Jesus' coming, even to abandoning the faith? I've seen it happen. My fear is that so many Christians today spend so much time on the prophetic and on when the rapture will take place that it's shifting their focus away from the great commission that Jesus gave us in Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. Are we still committed to being faithful servants to Jesus to carry out this commission that he has left us with? Are we still willing to lay down our lives to spread the gospel? See, there are many, many smart people, much smarter than me, who say that the end is near. They're convinced of it. But are we prepared this morning uh, to say that if we study history, we'll find that in some way or another, almost every generation thought that they were the last generation before Jesus came, came back. But no, no, Brother Louis, you don't understand. We are seeing the puzzle pieces fall into place right before our eyes. The COVID vaccine is the mark of the beast, or, or it's at least a way of preparing us for the mark of the beast. There are secret organizations behind the scenes that are pulling the strings and getting everything ready to take over the world. The Antichrist is about to be revealed. Well, and what will be a shameless little ad for my church history class, which will be starting in the second term, Lord willing, I would like to look at some events from the past that had Christians convinced that they were living in the last days before Jesus returned. Okay, the first one, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in the year 70. Just like Jesus predicted, the Romans destroyed the city and with it the temple. And for many it was a sign that Jesus was coming back so soon after this tragic event. Let me jump to what is called the Great Persecution in the year 303. Although Christianity was uh, almost uh, always uh, suffering from persecution, it was usually local and specific areas. But the Roman Emperor Diocletian declared the first empire-wide persecution of Christians, and that lasted for almost 10 years. Many people were put to death for their faith, and untold precious copies of Bible books and of other Christian writings were destroyed. In the year 410, just under 100 years later, the most unthinkable event ever took place. Rome, the eternal city, the unconquerable city, fell to the Visigoths, to barbarians. It is impossible for us to understand today what an effect that had on Christian thinking in those days. Many were convinced that this was a sign of Jesus' return. It could be the only explanation. Well, then the bubonic plague hit the Roman Empire in the, the year 541, killing between 30 and 50 million people. Or when the Black Plague hit Europe in 1347 and killed between half and three quarters of Europe's population. Estimates of 200 million people dead. Surely this was a plague of apocalyptic proportions. In the 16th century, Martin Luther wrote that the Pope, who was the head of the Roman Catholic Church, was leading the church astray, and that he was the spiritual Antichrist, while the Islamic armies that were just conquering everybody in their path in Europe represented the physical Antichrist. 
We've seen the chaotic events of the French Revolution and the rise of Napoleon Bonaparte. As many saw that as exactly how the Antichrist would rise up to bring peace and calm while taking over the world government. Then the First World War killed 17 million people. The Second World War, 69 million people. We had books written in the 20th century about Hitler being the Antichrist, or Mussolini, or Stalin. Any one of these men was going to usher in the Great Tribulation. Lastly, a book written that was titled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. 88 reasons, all of them wrong. Now, in each of these examples, these people had the scriptures in front of them, and they were looking at world events, and they deduced from that that Jesus was going to return soon in their lifetimes. So please don't get me wrong. I'm not disparaging them. I'm not making fun of them. I do believe that they were sincere in their uh, desire to see Jesus come back and to see their people prepared for that. They weren't intentionally misleading people, but yet here we are still today, all these years later. And if we have convinced ourselves that Jesus is coming any second now, are we really thinking about the future of our children, our children's children? Are we working smartly with our finances to ensure that we can provide for ourselves and for our families in the future? Are we being faithful at work, redeeming the time, knowing that we are making a difference no matter how small it is? Are we sharing the gospel with those who desperately need to hear it? Or have we already shut up shop and begun the countdown until we get raptured out of here? My question for you this morning is, if Jesus does not come back in our lifetime, are you prepared and ready to suffer for his sake if need be, to endure in the faith to the very end of your life? You see, the Apostle Paul in our text this morning didn't tell Timothy to keep an eye out for the signs that might show that the rapture is around the corner. Rather, he encouraged them to be faithful by using uh, examples of people who are hard workers, of people who could not afford not to endure among hard, amid hard times. The soldier and the athlete and the farmer. People who endure. So let's look at a, a few brief examples of suffering and enduring hardship for the sake of Jesus from church history. Again, coming soon to a church near you. During the 4th century... AD, there was a heresy called Arianism that um, just plagued the church. Arius taught that Jesus was not God, but just a created being. Now this heresy spread like wildfire, so much so that uh, the church father Jerome uh, later wrote that the world woke up one day and found itself Arian. But there was one man who stood like a pillar for the biblical truth about Jesus, Athanasius, the bishop of Alexandria. He was kicked out of his own church five times for defending the biblical truth. So here was the faithful bishop, hurt, rejected, and abandoned more than once by those whom he loved, who he cared for and he wanted to minister to, all because of a lie, a heresy. When someone asked Athanasius, why are you continuing to fight, Athanasius? Don't you know that the whole world is against you? Do you know what his reply was? If the whole world is against Athanasius, then let it be known that Athanasius is against the whole world. He would not compromise when it came to the truth. On the 17th of October, 1555, two English bishops, uh, Ridley and Latimer, were being ready to be burnt at the stake for their faith. 
as the pyres were being lit, uh, Mr. Latimer said, Be of good cheer, Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light up such a candle in England as I trust will never be put out. As Douglas Wilson put it, what could possibly motivate a man who is about to die a painful death for his faith to turn to his friend um, and say about this crowd that is just baying for their death, don't worry, Mr. Ridley, we've got them right where we want them. These people are about to kill us, but they don't know that through our deaths, a candle will be lit that will never be put out. He had his eyes on Jesus and how Jesus would use even their deaths to spread the light of the gospel. The last thing is this. Uh, The siege by the Spanish army of the city of Leiden in 1574. Now, there's a lot of backstory to this that we can't get into this morning, but basically the country we know today as the Netherlands was under the rule of the Spanish king, who was a staunch Roman Catholic. But the Netherlands wanted to embrace Protestantism. Protestantism. So the king said, no, there's no way that's happening. He sent his army, and Leiden was one of the first cities that was surrounded in order for them to conquer it. The city sent word to the leaders of the Dutch revolt that they had enough food to hold out for one month, and then maybe for another month after that. While the siege lasted from May to October, that's nearly six months. Many, many people inside the city died of disease and starvation. During this time, the Spanish made them an offer. Just surrender the city to us and we'll let you all live. But the inhabitants of Leiden knew that the Spanish would force them to renounce their religion and convert to Roman Catholicism. So what was the response from the people of the city of Leiden? They wrote back saying, You call us eaters of dogs and cats. Very well. So long then as in this city you hear a dog bark or a cat meow, you may know that we will not yield. And when all else is done, we will eat off our left arms and keep our right to fight for our country, our faith, and our God. And last, if we have to die, we shall set fire to the city and perish in the flames. These people would not surrender. They would not stop fighting for what they believed in, no matter what the cost. So church, this attitude and approach to suffering for the sake of Christ is not cultivated by spending your time researching conspiracy theories on Google. It's not grown by figuring out how um, world events fit into the book of Revelation. It's not nurtured by reading prophecy books. So is Jesus coming back for his church? Yes, absolutely. Should we be excited about that and look forward to that day? Yes, emphatically, yes. But we will do well to put the question of when he is coming back to the side and focus on being faithful servants and soldiers of Jesus Christ right until the moment that he does come back. Because if we do that, then we will automatically be ready. We will not be caught unawares if we serve him faithfully where and how he has called us to do so. But we will also be ready to carry on with our mission if our, Lord's, if our Lord decides to tarry for another generation. We will be ready to suffer for him if need be. Now the enduring of suffering or hardship is going to look different for each and every one of us this morning. It may mean struggling with disease, financial hardship, family issues, or even persecution for your faith. How then should we cultivate a biblical view of suffering for God? Let us come back to our text this morning, 2 Timothy. I believe that the purpose of this passage 
is to prepare us Christians for the reality of suffering and hardship that we might have to endure for the name of Jesus. So if you look at your outline, number one, find your strength in Christ. Find your strength in Christ. If we read verse 1, So you, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What is your motivation? What is that one thing that gets you to get up in the morning and tackle the day? That one thing that you think, if I didn't have this, I would be miserable. Is it your spouse, your kids, your job, your friends, money? These are all wonderful things, and they are gifts from God, but they are a very shaky foundation to build your life on, because all of these things can be taken away from us in a heartbeat. And what would we have left? Love your family, enjoy what God has blessed you with, but find your strength in Christ. Find your purpose and your reason for getting up in the morning in Him. Let your motivation be to serve Him, to walk with Him, and to know Him. Jesus famously told his disciples in John 15, verse 5, that without me, you can do nothing. Build your life upon this unshakable and internal foundation. With the strength that he gives us, we can endure hardship and suffering because he also gives us his glorious grace to comfort us in times of trouble. Point number two, how can you get involved in teaching or equipping others? How can you get involved in teaching or equipping others? Verse 2 says, Share the things that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses with faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So in the context, Paul is speaking to Timothy and exhorting him to train up other men as leaders and pastors and teachers. But I do think we can apply this uh, to our context in terms of discipling and teaching others and helping them grow in the faith. Like I said earlier, if we're planning to be out of here in the next couple of years, are we really committed to training up the next generation of believers to carry the torch? Are we committed to helping new Christians, young in the faith, to, to grow and mature? Or are we just trying to get them saved, just trying to fill up the lifeboat with as many people as possible before the Titanic sinks? You see, at the time that this letter was written, the church was young. Not many people could say, I've been a Christian for decades. Not a lot of people had the biblical foundation laid to be able to train other Christians. But here at FBC, we've been blessed with brothers and sisters who have served the Lord for a long time, many years. And they have so much wisdom, knowledge, biblical and practical insight worth sharing. We also have gifted teachers who are already making a difference. We need to be faithful stewards of God's truth, and that includes passing that truth on to others. Where or how can you get involved in teaching or equipping other believers? Point number three, we are in this together. We are in this together. Verse three says, endure hard times as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So the Greek there is literally suffer hardship together. And that implies that Paul is calling Timothy to join him and others in suffering for the gospel. It's a reminder of what Paul tells Timothy just in the previous chapter, in chapter 1, verse 8. He says, So do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the sufferings of the gospel by the power of God. Share. 
you know, one of the things that most frustrates me about the COVID-19 pandemic is that it really has forced us into isolation from each other. Christians couldn't gather for worship. Believers couldn't get together. Uh, we had to make do with YouTube messages and, and Zoom fellowship. And while we can praise God that those restrictions have been lifted, I fear that the damage has already been done. Many are wondering, do we still need to come to church? Do we still need to gather together? I mean, isn't Christianity about my relationship with Jesus? I mean, I've got my Bible, I've got the Holy Spirit. Is that not enough? Brothers and sisters, we need each other. We need to walk in fellowship and in accountability with other believers. God is most worshipped when we join together to hear the word taught, to sing his praises and to encourage one another. You need the support of others, but others need your support. We come to a church gathering not just to receive, but also to give, to be a blessing, to share in the sufferings of others, to carry one another's burdens in times of hardship. So being part of a church family will encourage us to stand firm in times of suffering. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. And let us consider how to spur one another to love and to good works. Let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the matter of some, but let us exhort one another, especially as you see the day approaching. In other words, the closer we get to Jesus' coming, the nearer we get to the end times, the more motivated we must be to join together as believers. This is not the time for, you know, for to be every man or every woman for themselves. No, we need to gather together. Point number four, these are practical examples of endurance. Verse four says, No soldier on active duty entangles himself with civilian affairs that he may please the enlisting officer. Anyone who competes as an athlete is not rewarded without competing legally. The farmer who labors should be first to partake of the crops. So, point number A, a soldier serving wholeheartedly. Serving wholeheartedly. Be an athlete abiding by the rules. Abiding by the rules. And see a farmer working with the harvest in mind. Working with the harvest in mind. We all know the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. This master goes away for a long time and he gives five talents to one who uh, doubles his investment. He gives two talents to another who also doubles his investment. And he gives one talent to an, another servant who buries it in the ground okay, and gets into a lot of trouble for not doing anything with it. But suppose this morning that that last servant did not bury his talent. Instead, he was so excited to see his Lord come back that he went and bought supplies and went to the highest viewing point of the city and sat down and waited eagerly for his master to return. Now, do you think he would be in less trouble than the one who had buried his coin? What have you done with the talent I entrusted to you? I didn't do anything with it, but, but I was the first servant to see you coming and to welcome you back. It's not enough for us to eagerly wait for Jesus to come back. He calls us to serve him productively while we are waiting that, for that glorious day to use the talents and resources he has given us to further his kingdom on earth. All three examples that Paul gives are of people who endure because they have an end goal in mind. Peace, a finish line, a harvest. The soldier gives up his own desires to serve the one who enlisted him. 
He's no longer free to pursue his own agenda. And soldiers often give their lives in service. Even in victorious battles, the winning side suffers casualties. We need to be reminded of that. The athlete is disciplined, training every day, following a strict routine that looks daunting to us from the outside. But he or she is focused on running the race and receiving the prize. Injuries, uh, delays, bad weather, stiff competition, these are all things that an athlete must deal with. There are no shortcuts. Okay? Cheating will not secure you the ultimate prize. If we don't follow God's rules in this life, we are like an athlete who is too lazy to train but thinks that somehow he can fix the race to still win. There's no satisfaction or pride to be had in winning unfairly. For the prize to mean something, it must have cost something of us. Spiritual discipline for the sake of Christ. Now, I've said many times that I don't think I have enough faith to be a farmer. They're a special breed. We just plow, plant, water, and harvest every year. Some years it rains too little. Some years it rains too much. Some years uh, the commodity prices cause them to run at a loss. Other years they make a nice profit. But there's an incredible steadiness to farmers, regardless of the circumstances. If there is no endurance, there would be no harvest. And without the harvest, the farmer will not survive. We need to be like farmers in our walk with God, because just like the farmer, there are many things um, out of their control, weather, pestilence, market prices, but they just get up every day and do what needs to be done to secure that harvest, no matter how small it is. In the same way, we need to trust God to handle the things that are out of our control in our lives. And we focus on securing our spiritual harvest. Because if the farmer's harvest fails, it's not just the farmer who feels the effects of that. A lot of other people go hungry as well. Think about that and how that relates to point number three. Paul gives us these practical examples of what it looks like to endure. So would you test yourself against these examples? Not just this morning, but regularly. Am I serving God wholeheartedly? Am I disciplined in my walk with Him? Am I securing a spiritual harvest to feed myself and others, and so to glorify God? Point number five, always remember Paul's teaching. Always remember Paul's teaching. Verse 7 8 says that consider what I'm saying, and may the Lord grant you understanding in all things. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David, according to my gospel. So Paul tells us to do two things with this teaching, to consider it and to remember it. So considering it means to study it, to think about it continually, turning it over in your mind. What does this mean? Testing yourself against it, as we saw just now. And to remember is to make it part of yourself, to constantly remind yourself about it. What he tells us to remember specifically is that Jesus rose from the dead, that he has descended from David. Now, I think Paul's meaning here is twofold. Firstly, Jesus rose from the dead. He defeated death and he triumphed over it. That should give us comfort that there is nothing, no power or person that can separate us from God. Even if this life ends for us, we are in the hands of the one who conquered death and we have nothing to fear. But secondly, Jesus is the Son of God. 
the heir to King David's throne, royalty in that sense. And yet he was not spared suffering hardship and being put to death. Now perhaps some of us here today will not taste death before Jesus comes. I don't know. But this verse should be a sober reminder to us today that becoming a Christian is not entering into a life that is a trouble-free, pain-free paradise on earth. It involves suffering and hardship. Number six, regularly recall Paul's testimony from his own life. Recall Paul's testimony from his own life. We read, it says, in which I suffer, like, I suffer trouble like a criminal, even with chains, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. You see, Paul has tremendous confidence in the power of God's word, even in his harsh circumstances, even in being in prison. He says, I'm speaking to you out of experience. I'm not calling you to do something which I didn't do. He suffered tremendously in his life. But let his testimony encourage us to stand strong and to follow in his example. Point A, he endured imprisonment, but he saw God's word spread regardless. He saw God's word spread regardless. If death itself could not bind God, what could possibly bind his word from impacting the world, impacting individual lives one at a time? In 1776, the French philosopher Voltaire is purported to have said, within 100 years, the Bible will be a, a forgotten book. While 100 years later, his house was being used as a storage facility for Bibles and gospel tracts in Paris. And if it ever looks to you like God's word is failing, if it looks to you like it's losing ground in the world, then rest assured that it has survived much tougher times than these. B, this gave him confidence to suffer for Christ. This gave him confidence to suffer for Christ. He knew that he was, it was not just for his own sake that he was suffering, but also for ours. He could see the work of God, uh, the word of God at work in his ministry. He understood that God can only do in him and through him uh, what was needed by allowing him to suffer hardship. We need to realize the same thing this morning. When we endure hardship and trials faithfully, that is a huge blessing and encouragement to fellow believers. When we stand firm and we stand strong, that is an encouragement and a blessing to our fellow believers. Lastly, remain faithful to God, knowing that He is faithful. Verse 11 says, This is a faithful saying, If we die with Him, we shall also live with Him. If we endure, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. God is faithful. Okay? We can know that whatever hardships we must face, whatever suffering we experience, it's not because God doesn't love us or doesn't care about us. It's that he values our growth in character more um, than he does our comfort. Okay? He, he values our growing in our trust in him more than he values our leisure. We don't always know or understand why these things happen to us. But God showed us his faithfulness by sending his son to suffer death in our place, by giving us his grace to become his children, by giving us strength to stand firm in the face of hardship and suffering. We can have confidence this morning that he will be with us through all our trials. So in closing this morning, let us look forward to the day that Jesus returns. 
but let us do so as laborers, as servants who are on the job, soldiers with sharpened swords, disciplined athletes, farmers having our hands on the plow. Christians must be prepared to suffer resistance and even hardship for the sake of the gospel. We are to faithfully and gladly endure it by God's grace, always remembering Paul's teaching and the risen Jesus, knowing that God's word knows no bounds. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word of encouragement this morning, that as we are called to suffer for you, to suffer hardship for you, in whatever form that may take for us, you are right there with us. Lord, you've allowed these things to happen, to shape us, to encourage others, and to let your kingdom come, Lord. And I pray that as we look forward to the day when you return, that we would do so serving you productively at work, not slouching, not sitting back, not waiting, not giving up on the world, but being faithful to what you called us to do so that when you return, when we meet you, you may also say to us, well done, good and faithful servants. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.